Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You ever feel like your vacation rental since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And today I'm going to be joined by an incredible guest, Joe Brusuelas, who is the principal and chief economist for RSMUS. And he is going to be talking about a topic that isn't immediately obviously relevant to real estate investors, but it's super important. And that is the labor market. And if you've been following the news, you've probably seen that despite tech layoffs that have really made a lot of splashy headlines in January, which is the last data we have for the job market as of this recording, there was an unexpectedly large number of jobs added over 500,000. And this obviously impacts impacts every one of us because we, most of us want jobs and have jobs and whether or not there are layoffs and how the economy is growing is super important. But the labor market is also really fundamental to what the Federal Reserve is doing right now. And obviously, as real estate investors, we care a lot about what is going on with the Fed and what they're doing with interest rates. And just before we have Joe on, I just want to re-explain something we've talked about a few times on the show, but I just want to make clear is that the Federal Reserve, their mandate from Congress is twofold. They have two jobs. The first on one hand, is to is pr- they call it price stability, which is basically fight inflation, right? Don't let inflation get out of control. You want stable prices. Their target right now is 2% growth per year. That's what the Federal Reserve targets. On the other hand, they also want to ensure maximum employment. They want as many people working as possible. And these are their two jobs. And sometimes they work really well together, right? For most since the Great Recession until the pandemic, they were doing really good. We had relatively low unemployment. We had low 
you know, low inflation. That was great for the Federal Reserve. It made their job relatively easy. Now, over the last couple of years, it's gotten a lot harder because we have two things going on. We have inflation going up so rapidly that many economists, and we'll hear Joe's opinion about this in just a minute, many economists feel that we need less employment to control inflation. And I'm not saying that's what I want. I don't want anyone to lose their job. But a lot of economists believe that the key to fighting inflation is to increase the unemployment rate. The thought here is that if you increase the unemployment rate, fewer people have less spending power, they spend less money, that puts less, that puts downward pressure on demand and prices, basically. So a lot of people think that, but, and a lot of the Fed's intention with raising interest rates is to, you know, create what they call, quote unquote, they call it, they have this word for it, like slack in the labor market, quote unquote, basically means more people losing their jobs. So the Fed is basically hoping, they're, they, it's not what they want, but they're basically saying that they are so worried that about inflation being bad, that they're willing to sacrifice their other mandate. They're willing to increase unemployment in that effort. The problem is that nearly a year after their first interest rate hike, it's not working. The unemployment rate is extremely low. And frankly, I don't fully understand why, which is why we invited Joe onto the show. Joe has been an economist for 20 years. He's got a lot of really interesting opinions uh, about what's going on in the labor market. And obviously, Joe doesn't know for sure, but he is an expert on this topic and, and studies it a lot. And what he talks about will have a really big implication on what happens with interest rates and uh, the housing market obviously followed those interest rates decisions. So I found this super interesting, gave me a lot to think about. I hope you enjoy it. So we're going to take a quick break, but then bring on Joe Brusuelas, the chief economist and principal for RSMUS. We know you've heard it before. Cash flow is getting very hard to find. There's always long distance investing, but you may be thinking, I don't have a team, enough experience, or the market knowledge to get in. That's where you're wrong. And it's also where Rent to Retirement comes in. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest out of state with confidence. They've got single family, multifamily, new build, and syndication opportunities across multiple markets. They even have bird deals with immediate equity. Rent to Retirement helps investors learn how to build a bulletproof business plan with the best investment and tax strategies around to help you reach financial freedom through real estate. There's no excuse not to get started in real estate investing when you have the right team and systems already in place. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, 
I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb. And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my nine to five job. So I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Joe Brusuelas, welcome to On The Market. Thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. So we're excited to have you on because we can't make sense of the labor market. So we're hoping you can help us um, understand what is going on. So can you give us a high level summary of how you see the labor market right now? Sure. A couple things. The first is, you know, between 1945 and 2015, the labor market grew to about 1% per annum. Given the shocks we went through in the great financial crisis, all of the things that followed, plus the shocks in the pandemic, the labor force is, labor force is now barely growing. We're talking one to two tenths of a percent per year. We're simply not producing enough native born replacement workers. And so we've reached a, a situation where the labor market is going to remain historically tight for the foreseeable future. Let me put that in a context for you. So we only need to produce about 65,000 new jobs a month to meet demand. That's very, very low. Right now, I think even notwithstanding the 517,000 jobs, quote unquote, that were created in January, the underlying rate of job creation is about 200,000 a month. So we just really have a very tight labor market. Now, for many of your listeners, they're probably thinking, what's this guy talking about? All I read are how all these people are getting laid off, how intentions of hiring are slowing. Well, you know, when you take a look at the underlying condition of the labor market, the median duration of unemployment is eight weeks. So if I see 250,000 or so people have been laid off in tech, why aren't they showing up? Well, not only are we not producing enough people, the people we are producing don't have the, the requisite skill sets that are necessary to meet where the demand is. So those people who've lost their jobs in tech, they have two choices. They can trade down, take a little less money, stay in tech, or then go work in the other portions of the real economy where those skill sets are incredibly in demand. And they're going to find very good employment at very good wages, triple to quadruple what the average American probably makes. So that's how you sort of square the circle, right? That labor market is tight. It's going to remain tight. Here's the important thing. Wages are not going to increase at one and a half to two percent per year, like we grew accustomed to between 2000 and 2020. They're probably going to be in that three to four percent range, and that's good for workers, right? But that'll be a challenge for businesses who are now adjusting to this historically tight labor market. And so it seems like this 
problem has become more acute recently when if the source of the issue, as you say, is sort of a lack of native born Americans, why is it sort of all coming to a head right now? Well, you know, in 2017, we really began to tighten immigration policy on top of the tightening that occurred really since 9-11, right? And so the typical solution in my lifetime when labor's gotten tight is we go ahead and we begin importing workers, right? Either through the H-1B visa or we increase legal immigration or we just basically de facto legalize the illegal workers, Right. So when you tighten up on all those things, you get in the situation that we're in. That's why over the last several years, labor market has just become somewhat tight. So when we look at the unemployment rate in the U.S., I, I often get a lot of questions about this. I'm hoping you can clear it up for us. How is it calculated and does it factor for people leaving the, the labor market and people having two jobs or how can you just explain to us how it works? Right. So the monthly employment report is two separate surveys, the establishment and the household. The unemployment rate is derived from the household survey. It does account for people who exit the market, who exit the market permanently. Right. And it, it attempts to see who is out of the market, but looking for work. Right. And then it does population adjust the number. So we get a pretty good sense of who's working and who's not. Now, is it perfect? It is not. But it's the best we have for now. I think the important thing to understand is, as wages have increased over the past three years, following the shocks of the pandemic, we've drawn people back in to the point where we've got more people working than we ever have just on a nominal basis, even if the employment to population ratio remains basically, you know, you know, 60%, right? So we're in a situation where the people who are now coming back to the labor market, their skill sets have atrophied, their professional networks are almost non-existent, and they often need vast and deep retraining to make sense. And so this is adding cost onto the to a firms who now are really having a difficult time finding qualified workers. You can find workers, but can you find qualified workers that you don't have to train or retrain at an increased cost to your operation? Got it. Thank you. So, you know, most people assume, I, I'm one of these people, um, that as interest rates have risen, that we would see larger percentage of firms laying off workers and that we would start to see the unemployment rate tick up, but we're seeing it move in the other direction. Can you help us make sense of that? Okay, well, one is, is, is again, it's, it's, we just, it's what I outlined earlier, right? Population, the increase in the population of the labor force just isn't growing the way it did before. And that's creating an imbalance, okay. Second, economists like myself do a terrible job at explaining the long invariable lags on the real economy from interest rate hikes. Now, historically, it would take one to two years. Now, it's starting to show up in dribs and drabs, right? We can see it. And is that a year? Sorry to cut you off, but is that like a year to 24 months from the first hike? Because we're not even at a year for the first hike. Yeah, from the, fir from fr the first hike and each successive hikes. So, yeah. So this could be years in the future. Yeah. We had six supersized hikes in the middle of last year. They're just barely beginning to show up, mm -hmm. right? 
And second, we've had some labor hoarding, especially in tech and especially in real estate construction. And it makes sense. In tech, it's because we don't have people with those scientific math and engineering skills, right? In labor or in the construction industry, it's because we cut off the immigration valve. So it's very difficult to, to find anybody to work. I built a home in Austin, Texas last year, early over the past two years. It took a long time to do. That must have just, been a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> it was very difficult to find people to do the work, much less the, the supply chain issues where I had to put all kinds of things that I wouldn't normally have put in the house because that's what was available, right? And that added a secondary layer of cost once things begun to, begun to get available, right? But those are first world problems. That's not really something we got to concern ourselves with mm -hmm. in the economy. So the, the combination of labor hoarding and immigration policy has created a situation of constraints in the overall economy. Could you just explain to everyone what labor hoarding means? Sure. What it means is that the tech economy and the life sciences economy runs on a separate and distinct logic compared to the one that you live in. They are so flush with cash that when they find employees, they'd rather keep them um, in order to meet expectations, expected increases in demand, even if that means they don't have enough to do with them. Wow. So that's why in 2022, you saw tech in the really in the last six to eight months of the year release some of their workers back into the workforce. It was about a quarter of a million, a little bit less. But those people aren't showing up on the unemployment rolls because, hey, if you can hire them, you probably should because they can do some incredible things that your workforce probably can't. That's super interesting. So the, the cost of eventually replacing these people yeah. is higher than holding on to them through a recession. You just nailed it. The cost of letting them go is so expensive. You're better off keeping them. And we're beginning to hear that more and more inside the real economy, outside the supercharged areas of life sciences, tech. You know, obviously we see what's going on in artificial intelligence. And, and so right now it's very difficult to let somebody go. You don't want to because it's going to cost more to replace them. That's fascinating. But it sort of makes sense given this sort of challenge that people have had hiring over the last few years. There's definitely some, I'm sure, some reticence to let people go because they've seen just how difficult it can be to rehire. The last time we saw this was at the end of the 1990s during the dot-com era. I remember going to the grocery store and it, it, the, the unemployment rate was in the mid threes and and it was difficult to hire people. And I remember the person who back then who would have bagged your groceries was basically been out of workforce for a good 10 to 15 years and looked at me like, am I supposed to be doing this? And I'm like, well, yeah, this is, I think, what you'd be doing. And they didn't know how, right? They were mixing up things. They were putting the eggs on top, that sort of thing. You know, it, it's been a long time since we've been in a situation where labor's just this tight. And it's it's natural that you're, A, you're asking these questions, and B, the public is growing a little bit restless because the explanations we're providing don't match up with their historical experience. And we just haven't seen this in over a generation. So given that you're saying there's this lag of 12 to 24 months from each successive rate hike, do you expect unemployment to go up over the course of the year? Well, it, historically it was. I think it's a bit sooner for these reasons. One is transparency out of the central bank. We know what they're doing in almost real time. B, large-scale asset purchases are what journalists call quantitative easing, the use of the balance sheet 
really impacts the real economy in, in very different ways because the Fed didn't do that part of the great financial crisis. And then three, the structural changes in the market mean financial markets are much more important vis-a-vis the banks, right? So we get a much shorter time span. So yeah, it is going to start to show up. Okay, where will it show up? Here we go. Here's here's the thing you can take with you, Dave, and hang your hat on. In the housing market, there are currently, through the end of January, 1.7 million homes under construction. And that's just about what we need to, because we got a big shortage in overall the overall stock of housing. We need a lot more housing, and we need it quickly. But housing starts and housing permits imply a run rate of 1.3 million at an average annualized base pace. So as those homes get completed and we decelerate down to that 1.3 million, you're going to see a lot of men, 25 to 54, discharged and looking for work in the open market that will make the unemployment rate go up. Now, I want to say this, and this is really important. The economy will slow. But it's not yet certain that we're going to go into recession. If we do go into recession, it's going to be modest, and it will not have unemployment rates that you would normally associate with a recession. You're a younger guy, Dave. You remember two recessions, the pandemic, where it went to 14%, and the great financial crisis, where it went to 10%. We're not going to get anywhere near that. Mm -hmm. We're, We're talking 5%. That would have been considered full employment 20 or 40 years ago. Interesting. Right. So, again, to circle back, those demographic changes have now come home. It's altering our own understanding of how the economy works and what constitutes full employment. We have a 3.4 percent unemployment rate. My estimation of full employment is 4.4 percent. Okay. Right. When I was in college, it would have been 6 percent. Indeed, think times passed and things have changed and they require new policies. You hit on something, I want to get back to the labor market, but you hit on something about a recession and that it might be a mild one. I think one of the common questions we have from our audience is, how do you define a recession? Let's ask an economist. Okay, I can tell you, it's easier to talk about what it's not. It is not two consecutive quarters of negative growth. We define recession in the United States economy very differently. It's a, it's a broad and synchronized decline across a number of discrete economic variables such as employment, retail sales, hotel, wholesale sales, industrial production. We could go into it deeper, but that, that essentially nails what a recession is. And here's what the difficulty is. If one were to look at, say, housing, I think it's pretty honest we're in recession right now, even if the unemployment's not there, because residential investment declined by 26.7% wow. in, the, in the fourth quarter, right? Manufacturing, is very close. It either is or soon will be. But you look at tech, you look at life sciences, you look at the broader service sector, not so much, mm-hmm. right? I travel a lot as an economist. The best part of my job is I get to go around the North American and global economies. I'm not stuck in the glass skyscraper as I was for many decades. It's made me a better person and a better economist. I get a good idea of what's going on out there. Try going to an airport right now. Just try. It's a difficult proposition. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, there's no recession at the airport, right? No way. It's happening. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Right? Yeah. So we're, if we do have a recession, we're going to have a non-synchronized recession. Or what, what some might call a rolling one. Yeah. So this, that, okay, a rolling one. Because that makes me wonder, like, what 
purpose or what use does the word or term definition of recession mean then if it doesn't if it isn't ubiquitous across the economy like should the average american really care if we're in a quote unquote recession or not or should we really just be thinking about the individual sectors of the economy that impact our individual lives okay there's two things here there's the public and then there's investors the public should care because when you do get that downturn, you will get an increase in unemployment. Mm -hmm. And remember, one person's recession is another person's depression, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if we're talking about investors, that's a different thing. We definitely need to be looking at the different ecosystems out there, right? Because they're, they're going to have different realities. And the deeper you dive down to the zip code level, the different outcomes you're going to have. I live in Austin, Texas. My job is in New York, basically. I'm all over the place. I live in the tech utopia, mm -hmm. but this Austin's the boom town. We don't have enough people to fill the jobs. We don't, we, I mean, the unemployment rates in the low twos, right? We don't have enough homes to meet the needs of the people who live here. We don't have enough people. So, right, that's going to be very different than Huntsville, Alabama, right? Right. Or Kansas City, Missouri, or Kansas City, Kansas, for that matter. So, yeah, it, it, it does, it really does matter. Um, whether we're, we're in a recession or not. Now, before the time you and I inhabited this, uh, the third stone from the sun, <laughs> federal, federal governments, that is the fiscal and monetary authorities, did not respond the way they do now. It was thought that, well, markets automatically clear, markets are perfect. Um, and what the best thing we should do is nothing. Just let the market clear, liquidate stock, liquidate labor, liquidate everything because that'll get us back on the virtuous cycle. Well, we had some problems along the way and markets are not perfect. They don't perfectly adjust. I know for some people, those are fighting words, but that's just the way that is these days. And we need to be able to identify when the economy slowed down in order to use the balance sheet of both uh, the fiscal authority and if necessary, not always the case, but if necessary, the monetary authority, the central bank, in order to stimulate the economy, to get the animal spirits moving again and create the conditions for a resumption and expansion of overall economic activity. That's a great segue to my last question about monetary policy. Given what you said at the top of the show that a lot of this is demographic driven and that we have basically too many jobs right now for the working population, how difficult is the Fed's job going to be? They seem particularly concerned about wage growth, which you said would be three to four percent. And, you know, a lot of people are saying they need to, quote unquote, break the labor market before they stop raising rates. So how do you see this all playing out? There's a couple of things here and this discussion works on or travels on a couple of different levels. The first thing is the Fed does need to generate additional labor slack in order to cool the economy. We were looking at... Uh, Employment, the employment cost index through the end of the fourth quarter, it's up 6.3% on a year ago basis. That, that's clearly too strong. And that's on the edge of wage, wage price spiral terrain. So policy needs to move in further into restrictive terrain. And that means the policy rate's going to increase. We think three consecutive 25 basis point increases in March, in May, and in June. That'll bring us to a potential peak of 5.5% with risk of moving higher, it's going to depend on the evolution of the data. Now, the problem here is, is that 
the inflation that we're seeing it will, is a bit different than that which we're going to see going forward. Most of the inflation we've seen has to do with the supply shocks unleashed by the pandemic and then the policy response put in place to mitigate those shocks. April 2020, unemployment rates at 14%. You know what? These inflation problems are well worth an, uh, an, an unemployment rate at 3.5% as opposed to 14%. So I do the same thing over again, essentially, perhaps with some small differences on the margin. Now, as the goods inflation is turned to deflation, we're now shifting to demand for services, hence why it's a problem at the airport or at the mall or the grocery store, right? Because demand's still strong. That's where we have to deal with what's going to be higher unemployment through the middle, that'll start in the middle of the year and increase probably through the end of next year. Now, there are things going on with respect to the supply side of the economy that don't have to do with monetary policy or fiscal policy that have to do with some of the broader economic and strategic tensions out there in the world. It's very clear that at the very least, we're going to be engaging in selective decoupling from China. The G7 are clearly moving in that direction. That means goods, specifically higher priced, sophisticated goods are going to get that much more expensive. And those are going to be passed along here uh, in the United States. That means that 2% inflation target is likely to give way to a 3 or perhaps 35 or 4% inflation target because we just don't have enough people and we're engaging in this decoupling from hyper-globalization to a globalization that's defined by regionalization. Well, that means rates are going to be higher than what they've been for the past 20 years. Most of your lifetime, what you know is um, inflation at around one to one and a half percent per year and very low interest rates that in real terms uh, are negative. That's not going to define the next 20 years for you. You're going to be moving and living in a very different time, a very, a very different era. Essentially, the era of 1990 to 2020, the era of hyper-globalization has effectively come to an end. We're moving into a different era that requires different policies and, quite frankly, different people with different analytical frameworks and economic models. So we're, we're, going, to, we're going to have a pretty big turnover here. And that's why your question about why the public should care is spot on, but the public is different from investors, right? And so the, the, the two right now are, tra are traveling on parallel lines. All right, well, Joe, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you joining us. Hopefully we can have you back someday to uh, expand on this topic a bit more. Sure, thank you very much. All right, big thanks to Joe for being here. Obviously, the labor market is not my area of expertise, but I've been trying to learn a bit more about it given its importance in the, what the Fed is doing in monetary policy in the U.S. And because that has huge impacts on the uh, real estate market, I really want to understand more. And I think the main takeaway for me is that the interest rate hikes that have been going on uh, for nearly about a year right now are really just starting to be felt in terms of the labor market. And although we're seeing these sort of surges in jobs recently, it's 
probably, according to Joe, Joe thinks that we're going to start to see the unemployment rate tick up over the next couple of months, you know, starting probably mid-year is what he said. And as a result, that should help inflation. That is that is Joe's opinion. I think that's a an interesting good take. Uh, we obviously don't know what's going to happen, but I think he is very informed um, and offered some really interesting opinions there. So thank you all. Hopefully you like this episode. If you have any questions about it, you can always hit me up on Instagram where I'm at the data deli. We appreciate you listening and we'll see you next time for On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.